Hey everyone, Brock here. Unfortunately, I haven't had much time to create some new videos, so I wanted to share with you one of the live classes that we did in which we introduced the kidneys, we had a look at the nephron, the functional unit of the kidneys, and sort of explored why it is they are so important in keeping us alive, happy, and healthy. Enjoy. So, before we had a quick 10 minute breather to, well, catch our breaths and um, wrap our head around things, uh, we essentially just looked at this filtration pressure. And what's just important to note here is that we need to have a certain amount of pressure in order to, um, you know, push these, uh, you know, this, this fluid, our, our blood essentially through this um, glomerular capillary and into our nephron. Okay. This is the filter. This is sort of the filter part, uh, filter paper um, of, of the body. Now, again, you don't need to know numbers. We don't need to know all of these specific bits and bobs. The most important thing is that just we understand the general process that is happening, which if we remember what is happening with bulk flow in our, capillar uh, uh, in our capillaries there, we're doing well. Now, the next part I want to look at here is um, the essentially like the juxtaglomerular apparatus um, or what we are looking at here with our granular cells and our macula densa cells. Now, there was a slide back here. Here we go. And I said, oh, I'm going to come back to this slide. Um, this is what we're going to be focusing on now. So the big thing here is that we obviously have our afferent arteriole, blood's going through our glomerular capillaries and leaving via the efferent arteriole. Now, we can control the rate in which um, this filtration occurs. And this is called EGF. Uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, yeah, EGF. Um, wait, EGF? Oh my goodness, guys, my brain is just, it's, it's having a bit of a, a TKO moment. Oh my goodness. Okay, it's GFR. Now, the reason, I should probably explain why my brain just had a bit of a seizure there, is my master's thesis, I um, explored a receptor and a signal, a, a signaling ligand called EGF, epidermal growth factor. And this is uh, GFR. <laughs> um, so yeah, my brain still sometimes just has a bit of a seizure during, during those, uh, whenever I talk about those two. Uh, so GFR is glomerular filtration rate. And this is looking at the rate of filtration that is occurring in our glomerulus. And we can change or adjust that flow. Now, there are two main ways in which our body does this. The first one is looking at our, uh, I shall talk about the granular cells first, the granular cells. Now, these are located within the afferent arteriole. And what these do is that these contain stretch receptors. So in the same way, like with our, our blood vessels, and we can sort of determine the amount of blood pressure we have by looking at the stretch of our um, arteries and our arterioles, we can do the same thing here with our afferent arterioles and our granular cells. And what they do is when they stretch a certain amount, okay, if they don't stretch a certain amount, if the blood pressure is high or low, we can control the flow into the glomerulus accordingly. So a, a good example there is like, let's say we have a drop in blood pressure and let's say the flow to our, um, our glomerulus here drops. So what we can do is if we do have a, a drop in blood pressure and we wish to sort of increase that, uh, that uh, GFR, that glomerular filtration rate, 
we can actually cause some vasodilation to occur in the afferent arteriole. So by dilating those vessels, we're increasing that blood flow, getting more blood into these glomerular capillaries here, which will increase the amount of uh, glomerular filtration. The second one here, this one's a little bit more tricky to wrap your head around, but we'll be okay, is the macula denser cells. Now, these macula denser cells are sort of located at the top of the um, ascending loop of Henle slash the distal convoluted tubules. And um, what these cells do is they measure and detect the concentration of sodium. Um, now, what happens here in terms of our glomerular filtration rate? Let's say our filtration rate was really, really high. Okay, we're filtering heaps of stuff and we're going quick, 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 go, 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 go. And it's we're screaming through our, our proximal convoluted tubule and zroom, we're going down a loop and up the loop and we're going really, really, really fast. Cool. But the problem is, is that if we're moving really, really fast, we're not absorbing things, yeah? We're not absorbing as much stuff because we're doing it quicker. We don't have as, like, because the substance is moving through faster, we don't have as much time to really absorb um, those substances. So what happens is if our filtration rate is really high, as we come screaming down our descending loop of Henle, our ascending loop of Henle, remember it's the ascending loop is when we're reabsorbing those sodiums and chlorines and those potassiums, all of these salts. If we get to the top of our ascending loop of Henle here, and suddenly these macular denser cells are going, whoa, this is still really salty. Okay, there is still lots of sodium in here. That's obviously a bit of a problem because it means, okay, we're, we're moving through this too fast. We aren't reabsorbing things properly. We need to slow things down. And that's what I'm sort of explaining here. So we've got our afferent arteriole, afferent arteriole. Um, we've got our macula denser cells. Now, granular cells, again, <laughs> granular cells can go by two names. Um, we can call them granular cells or we can call them uh, juxtaglomerular cells. I personally call them granular cells. Um, now, what can happen here is that the macula densa will then send a, a signal here to the afferent arteriole and say, whoa, hey, we are moving way too fast. We need to slow this down. And what will happen is we will start to see vasoconstriction in the afferent arteriole. And that will slow down or that will reduce the amount of uh, blood moving into the glomerular capillaries there, which is going to reduce our glomerular filtration rate. So, again, regulation of our GFR, our glomerular filtration rate, is um, twofold. We can break it down into intrinsic and extrinsic. Now, intrinsic control is what I've literally just explained. We have myogenic and tubular glomerular feedback. Now, again, these seem very complicated terms. Myogenic control. This is just simply what I described with our granular cells here. This is just simply looking at the stretch of that arteriole and looking at, um, yeah, the amount of stretch and the amount of flow that is happening in that afferent arteriole. So we can look at that stretch and we can vasoconstrict or vasodilate to control that flow accordingly. The second one is tubuloglomerular feedback. So within the nephron, we have these tubules, our proximal convoluted tubule, our, well, loop of Henle. 
and our distal convoluted tubule. So we have our um, macula densa cells communicating with, whoops, with our essentially the glomerulus. So tubuloglomerular feedback, it's basically communication between that um, ascending limb, that tubular part and our glomerulus. And this is where we can control the amount of blood flow going into the kidneys by looking at that sodium concentration. Because again, if sodium concentration is far too high, uh, when we get the to the top of the ascending limb of the loop of Henle, it means we're not absorbing stuff properly because it's, it's moving through too quickly. If it is too low, then that's telling us, okay, well, it's like, you know, we need to probably speed things up a bit. So we can control the ideal speed based upon by looking at that sodium concentration in the nephron. Now, that we also have extrinsic control. So looking at our extrinsic control, we have sympathetic nervous system. Now, this obviously has an effect because if we have our um, uh, SNS activation, so let's say again, Trish comes out with a big stick and she's chasing me and I'm running for dear life. Then what is going to happen there is that I'm obviously going to divert a lot of my blood flow away from the kidneys because I'm running for my life. My priority is not on um, creating urine. Um, then, uh, so of course, what's going to happen then is that the GFR is going to be significantly reduced. The second one is the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So RAS, uh, again, I'm going to reserve that and I'm going to be um, talking about that next week. And the last one here is looking at sort of, um, looking at paracrine and... Um, endocrine hormones, so looking at sort of um, cortisol, looking at adrenaline and noradrenaline, all that sort of stuff. This can obviously control the amount of um, blood flow and um, the total amount of, uh, you know, glomerular filtration that is occurring. So these next few slides is pretty much just what I've um, I've already uh, explained here. So again, if we've got a change to our overall uh, blood pressure, so if we instance... Um, you know, have a, a very high uh, blood pressure, we're getting a high amount of flow, we need to reduce that filtration rate, we can undergo this vasoconstriction and um, reduce the amount of blood flow going into the um, uh, glomerulus there, reduce that uh, filtration rate. So again, we've already covered that, um, the tubuloglomerular feedback there, looking at measuring those um, that sodium concentration in the filtrate. Um, we've got the sympathetic nervous system here, um, RAS, we're going to be talking about that later. Now, this lovely diagram here, I'm going to be bringing up this diagram again when we look uh, at the end of next week, because this kind of ties everything nicely together, especially when we're looking at regulation of blood pressure and blood volume. What we have done is basically we've looked at these two over here. We're not going to look at this one just yet. That's that's next week's job. We're, we'll, we'll deal with that then. We're going to focus on this side. And again, this is a nice little flow chart of what I was just describing before in terms of this myogenic feedback and uh, tubuloglomerular feedback and controlling that uh, glomerular filtration rate. So again, if we have a decrease in blood pressure, there's going to be this decrease in stretch, which means we've obviously got this decrease in glomerular filtration rate. So we get some vasodilation, increased blood flow, bing, bang, bomb, we've fixed the problem. Again, a decrease in glomerular filtration rate. This means that 
Um, we're going to notice less sodium and less chlorine in the ascending loop of Henle uh, by those macular denser cells because it's moving through way more slowly. That means that there's plenty of time to uh, reabsorb a lot of those um, salts. And that's going to basically send some signals to the macular denser say, hey, whoa, hang on, our sodium concentration here is too low. That's then going to send um, signals to our granular cells, um, looking at sort of the juxta glomerular complex of the kidney, and basically say, look, we need to get uh, increase that blood flow. Uh, so we're going to see that vasodilation there, with the result being an increase in glomerular filtration rate. So again, we're just looking at these two at the moment. Um, this will be next week, and we'll tie it all together then. Now, holy dooly. So we've covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, we've done a lot of stuff. Now, this entire time, uh, well, since we got back from the break, I should say, rather, we are been here, okay? We have been in the glomerulus. We haven't left, okay? We've looked at the glomerulus and our afferent arteriole. So a bit of a reminder here, again, of our three primary functions. What are we doing here? First one, we are filtering. We are filtering things based upon size and obviously the, the rate of filtration. So that GFR, that glomerular filtration rate. The second thing is a lot of the things that are being filtered out, we do not want to get rid of. It doesn't mean it's waste. So we need to reabsorb it. So we can see our peritubular capillary down here. And the third point will be secretion. This is getting rid of stuff that our body doesn't want anymore, putting it into uh, the nephron to be released as urine. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so again, this is a good little summary uh, slide here. We all should be familiar enough to be able to identify every single aspect of this nephron. We should be able to communicate clearly what each aspect of this nephron does and answer anything to do with this, basically. So we see here, renal artery, we've got our glomerulus, we've got our Bowman's capsule down here. Um, we, we have our peritubular capillaries surrounding this. We have our proximal convoluted tubule, descending and ascending loop of Henle, our distal convoluted tubule, and our collecting duct. With anything that is being reabsorbed by these areas, moving into our peritubular capillary, reconnecting back to our afferent arteriole, oh, sorry, our, um, no, afferent arteriole, going back into sort of our venous network, resuming that circulation there. Okay, so it's, it's going back into circulation. It's not like all of these substances that we are reabsorbing are just sort of hanging out in the kidney, never to be seen again. Uh, again, a lot of this stuff I've already explained. Um, oh, right, okay. So, Big thing here too, learn when we're looking at this reabsorption, okay, especially the key um, nutrients and 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 minerals and stuff like that, especially things like glucose, our body is exceptionally good at it. However, that doesn't mean it is 100%. So when we're looking at uh, the reabsorption of glucose, okay, we require a, a protein-based transporter there to move it out of the nephron. Now, the problem here is that that can be saturated. Uh, imagine like you're going to, uh, you're, you're at Woolies or Coles and you're trying to um, buy some groceries and every single checkout lane is filled. That's what I mean by like trying to reabsorb glucose, but it's completely saturated. 
That means that your body is working 100%, like maximum speed, foot to the pedal, trying to absorb all this glucose. But if you're, say, someone who's diabetic, there's just too much there. It can't absorb all of it, which is why glucose doesn't, like all that glucose doesn't end up being absorbed. It goes all the way through. And hence one of the um, primary symptoms or the side effects there is, um, you know, glucose in the urine, which is obviously very, very bad because obviously it's going to generate its own sort of uh, 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 osmotic gradients there and you know, pull water out of you. So, again, let us go through another quick breakdown of the nephron again, because again, I've stressed it to, to the moon and back, its importance. Now, these next couple of slides here are very, very good. They are also incredibly detailed, okay? You do not need to know all of the detail on these next couple of slides. Um, I'm just going to point out the key things that we need to be aware of. So again, we have our proximal convoluted tubule here. This is the big boy for absorption. So we don't need to know like, you know, primary active transport via the basolateral sodium potassium ATPase pump and blah, blah, blah. Nah, don't bother about that. The big thing here is that we are just reabsorbing uh, just everything that is super duper duper useful here. So we're grabbing sodium, we're grabbing water, we're grabbing you know, vitamins, we're grabbing glucose, we're grabbing amino acids, we're grabbing um, any cations or anions. So cation is positive ion, anions, negative ions. So our uh, potassiums, our magnesiums, our phosphates, our sodiums, all of that sort of stuff. We're just, just rapidly trying to absorb as much stuff as we can to put it back into our circulation. Because again, if we do not reabsorb it, it turns to urine and is gone. Once we leave the proximal convoluted tubule, we enter the nephron loop or the loop of handling. Now, what we see here is a bit of sort of a cyclic function, right? So what's going to happen is we're going down our descending loop of handling. And it's during this stage that we are absorbing water. Cool. How? How is it that we are absorbing this water? Well, the surrounding interstitial space here is very salty. So because it's salty, we've created that osmotic gradient and we are pulling water out. Okay, cool, 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 cool. That checks out. So then we go up the ascending limb of the loop of Henley. What does the ascending limb do? Oh, that's when we get the reabsorption of salts, our sodiums, our chlorines, and our potassiums in particular. Okay, so what does that do? Well, we are absorbing those salts, so sodium, chlorine, potassium, and moving it into the interstitial space, which means that the interstitial space is getting more salty, which now that that interstitial space is getting way more salty is going to help us reabsorb more water. So you can see how the fact that we're absorbing salts in this ascending limb helps us to absorb water in the descending limb. So it's, they sort of work together in that regard. Now, again, I don't want you to go through looking at secondary active transport. I just want you to be aware that we are absorbing water and our salts. And the absorption of those salts is generating that osmotic gradient that is allowing us to absorb that water via osmosis. We then move into our distal convoluted tubule. Now, again, as I said before, once we enter the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting ducts, these are the only two parts that we have actual hormonal control over. 
which again, we're going to be talking about next week, but we can control the amount of sort of sodium and water recovery that we have from the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting ducts. And that can be done via aldosterone, antidiuretic hormone, and of course, parathyroid hormone. Now, if we haven't gotten all of that absorption done already, it's okay. We have a last opportunity to do so, and this is via the collecting duct. Now, this does depend on aquaporin. Again, we're going to talk about that next week. But this is what allows us to um, have a bit of a say or to help control how concentrated our urine is. So for instance, if I've just chugged down like two liters of water, chances are it's not going to be going like super duper active here in terms of like, you know, that like absolutely hyperactive um, uh, 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 water reabsorption because I'm well hydrated. I don't need to reabsorb every single drop that's happening there. I can actually um, lose some of that water as urine and help sort of remove some of those waste products. If, however, I haven't drank anything in like, you know, a couple of hours and I'm starting to get very dehydrated and my blood volume is starting to decrease, then my body is going to really start to activate a lot of mechanisms to really allow me to like hold on to as much water as I can. Okay, so the last thing now is our tubular secretions. This is where we're actively moving things into our filtrate for the purpose of them going into our um, urine for removal from the body. We're, we're, we're removing it as waste. So although a major focus of the kidney is looking at, you know, reabsorbing this, you know, reabsorption of that primary filtrate, it's not the only thing. We are trying to get rid of waste products, okay? We're trying to excrete it. Um, one uh, big one is obviously the selective excretion of some drugs. Um, this is why, you know, a lot of drug screenings are done by a urine test or a blood test because um, a lot of drugs are, rem are removed via the urinary system. Um, we can't eliminate some of these passively reabsorbed substances. I haven't really spoken about passive reabsorption. Um, that's when things get a little bit squirrely. Again, we're just trying to keep things nice and simple here. Now, what we have here is um, we can control the amount of potassium and um, hydrogen here. So we have like an exchange. So um, we can exchange, like we can lose a potassium, gain a hydrogen, and we can control our blood pH in this way because we can control whether we remove hydrogens or we remove bicarb, which allows us to control our blood pH. So if our blood is too acidic, we get rid of some of these hydrogens, okay? We come back down to normal. If our body is too alkaline, we get rid of some of these bicarbonates. We can just um, get rid of it by putting it in the urine. We get more acidic. And this is what I mean by our kidneys are exceptional at buffering and controlling the pH of our blood. So we go through all of the nephron. We've gone through the proximal and distal convoluted tubules. We've gone through the loop of Henle. We've gone down the collecting duct. We've done everything we need to do. From there, it is now urine. So I've exited the collecting duct. It is now urine. We normally produce one to two liters a day, but again, it does vary enormously depending on how much you have drank, your current health, what you're currently doing, um, what you've eaten as well plays a big role in that, all sorts of different stuff. 
Now, obviously the color um, and sort of the visual um, characteristics of urine changes depending on your level of hydration. It can be sort of completely clear if you're very, very well hydrated versus, you know, if you are quite dehydrated, it can be sort of quite a deep yellow in color, um, which is due to urobulin, um, which is a, a byproduct that's formed by the breakdown of hemoglobin, which is quite interesting because hemoglobin is responsible for your poop being poop colored and your pee being pee colored. So really you have hemoglobin to just thank for so much. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, now our urine is slightly acidic, okay? It typically bounces around a pH of six, but again, it does change depending on your blood pH, depending sort of how you're, how you're going. Um, you know, if your blood is overly acidic, you know, it will, your body will try to remove a lot of those acids and your, uh, and your urine will get more acidic or vice versa in terms of alkalinity. Now, obviously urine has a odor to it, especially because we are removing uh, urea and um, ammonia uh, from, from your body. And that's what we covered last week when we were, uh, well, last, uh, before the uh, mid-trimester break, rather. Uh, that's when we were looking at that gluconeogenesis and that removal of the amino group, um, that deamination. And you can take that amino group and essentially create uh, urea. And that uh, urea is the one of the main components in urine. And that's how um, it sort of got its name. Here we go. So now we're looking at some of the components of urine. Now urine is predominantly water. A lot of urine is water. It does however contain urea, as I just explained from the gluconeogenesis. Um, so turning uh, like amino acid into glucose. We've got creatinine. I'm not going to talk about creatinine or creatine monophosphate um, because what we're sort of uh, it's sort of to do with like um, muscle uh, muscle uh, breakdown and muscle building, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, ammonia and uh, again from uh, gluconeogenesis, uh, uric acid that's coming down from our nucleic acids. Not going to talk too much about uric acid. Um, of course, we've got our excess electrolytes. You know, if we uh, eat too much, like if we got uh, fish and chips and we had too much chicken salt, which I know it's, there's no such thing, is there? There's really... You can you can't have too much chicken salt, but you get what I mean. If we uh, if we have an excess amount of salt, um, our body will obviously try to um, excrete that or get rid of it uh, via the uh, via urine. Now this composition here of urine will change um, quite a lot depending on diet, depending on uh, depending on your health, depending on your overall hydration, all sorts of stuff. All this sort of stuff is relatively common. It's relatively normal. What is not normal is sort of finding things like glucose. We shouldn't be finding glucose in the urine because again, our body has an, a remarkable capacity to absorb uh, or reabsorb rather glucose. Blood. Please don't have blood in your urine. If you do, um, talk to someone, okay? Maybe book an appointment with the GP because uh, there absolutely should not be blood in the urine. Um, same with proteins and uh, the presence of proteins or, or blood in the, in the urine can be indicative of, um, kidney damage. Uh, ketones, uh, ketones would be, uh, present there in terms of like starvation, um, or some types of diabetes, uh, can indicate, um, presence of ketones in the urine and Billy Rubin is looking at sort of the liver. Now I don't expect you to sort of memorize or know, um, Oh, I mean, it's good to keep these in mind, but this is a, a perfect example here of like 
where you will be going from 1808 NRS. So once you finish sort of the studies with, with me and you move on to second and third year, this is where you're going to take a lot of this um, understanding of these key body systems, like, you know, the heart and the, the, the lungs and GIT and kidneys and all that. And you're going to be using your understanding on how these systems work, but exploring when they don't work properly. So for instance, you know, if we're finding um, glucose in the urine, you know, possible causes diabetes. Um, now, if we're looking at things like erythrocytes, you know, it could be trauma. So, you know, a, a blunt force blow to the kidneys. Um, yeah, so these are some of the possible causes here. Now, a lot of these we can't determine just with the naked eye. Like we, you know, depending on the quantity, we might be able to see um, blood in the urine. Okay, you'd see sort of a color change there. Um, looking at leukocytes or pus in the urine, it'd sort of look a bit cloudy, such in the case of like a UTI, a urinary tract infection. But many of these other things like, you know, uh, bile or proteins or glucose and ketone bodies, we can't see with the naked eye. So what we would have to do is do a urinalysis. So do an analysis of urine. Now we can do this again by visual observation. So as I said, you know, looking at um, blood and, you know, whether the urine is, is cloudy, that can give us some indication of uh, what is happening here uh, with respect to the, with the urine. Um, in uh, many other cases, like looking at, um, you know, glucose or ketones and stuff like that, we will have to use a dipstick. And you will just look for a color change to determine um, presence of various substances. Now, you can use a microscope. You can use microscopy here. Um, I mean, not all that much to my knowledge. I mean, uh, like, you know, if you do see a slight color change and you think it might be blood, you could um, take a sample and put it under a microscope to see if you can see these red blood cells. Um, <laughs> you do not want to see crystals. Why is crystals in the urine super duper 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 bad? Hey, there it is. Hole in one. Kidney stones. Let's just sound. Ugh. Yeah, I've heard stories of how uh, hideously painful they can be. Uh, so yeah, we've got we've got uh, crystals which we do not want in the urine. Um, another sort of uh, chemical uh, urinalysis is a pregnancy test, and what this is, is you are essentially, you know, you pee on a stick and you look for the little line to appear. And what is, is measuring is the presence of HCG, which is human chorionic gonadotropin. And what this is, is essentially a hormone that is released during, you know, successful implantation of the sort of the, 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 the blastula to the um, endometrial wall, sort of signifying pregnancy. Um, so that's how a pregnancy test works. And of course, um, you know, various drugs that are removed from uh, via the, the urinary system. Uh, yeah, Brentha, that's it. Yeah, yeah, crystal urea. Now, this hormonal regulation of urine production, I am not going to talk about this today. I'm going to be talking about this next week because it links very, very, very nicely with um, control of blood volume. So that's when I'm going to talk about these hormones here. Now, why do we care about looking at urine? Why is it so important? Well, looking at diuretics, which um, I will need to double check this, but last time I checked, it was the top two 
Um, out of the top 10, rather, most prescribed medications in Australia, uh, in the top two were diuretics. And they are administered for the treatment of chronic hypertension. So um, uh, basically long-term high blood pressure. Because what a diuretic does is um, promotes the, the release of, um, of water as urine. It increases urine production. Now, if we wish to increase our blood volume, we release a hormone called anti-diuretic hormone, which increases water reabsorption. So a good way to remember this um, is alcohol, okay? If you go out for a big night with your friends, okay, you have one drink and then you have two drinks and then you have four, five, six, seven, eight drinks. What are you doing a lot throughout the night? You are peeing like a champ, exactly. Why? Because it is a diuretic. It is increasing urine production by decreasing urine reabsorption. So an anti-diuretic hormone does the opposite. And that would happen during dehydration or low blood volume. You will be uh, decreasing the amount of urine formation and increasing the amount of water reabsorption, which again would be in our Luper Henley, in our distal convoluted tubule, in our collecting duct. So we have produced urine. Hooray, we did it. What then happens next? Well, that urine goes down that collecting duct, it goes down those renal uh, sinus, renal pelvis, and will go down to the ureta. Once we move down the ureta, it will then travel down into the bladder where it will be stored, okay? Until uh, uh, an, an appropriate time to release, let's say that. Now, thankfully we do have voluntary control over our, um, our bladder and what we have here is this um, urethral sphincter. So once we get um, to a certain uh, quantity of um, uh, urine in the bladder, it is going to trigger these uh, transitional epithelial uh, cells to and with those stretch receptors to basically send a signal going, hey, hey, um, bladder's full. We should do something about that. What you will then do is at an appropriate time, you will voluntarily um, relax this urethral sphincter and this urine uh, will then move through this urethra and out to the exterior. Now, that, those stretch receptors and th that transitional epithelium is a big reason why um, those who are, uh, have, pre have been pregnant or are pregnant feel as though they need to pee all of the time because there is pressure being put on the bladder and the body will think, oh, um, those stretch receptors are being triggered. I must have a full bladder when you, you don't. Now, another thing we need to sort of take into account here is the urethra and the urethral length. Now, um, how do I say this? Uh, guys have it pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, now, an unfortunate uh, issue um, that you poor ladies suffer with by having sort of quite a, a, a short urethra is the presence of UTIs, urinary tract infections. Because your urethra is only sort of four-ish centimeters long, there's really not much of a barrier there between um, the bladder and the external environment. Um, 
which again makes it more prone uh, to to UTIs. Uh, men, on the other hand, our you know urethra can be over five times the length of yours, so it's a lot more difficult for bacteria to really work their way up there. However, uh, you know, sort of turning a frown upside down is looking at catheters. Um, the insertion of a catheter for females is not that bad. I mean, I don't want to understate it. It's still not very pleasant, but due to uh, female urethral length being um, only sort of four-ish centimeters long, it's not that hard to sort of put a catheter in there, sort of tap the tank as it were. Uh, for men, on the other hand, um, it's a, a lot worse. It is a lot more difficult and a lot more painful to um, have, a, have a catheter inserted. Um, now, a lot of these um, structures here, we're going to be talking about that a lot more uh, in week 10 when we get to sort of reproduction and development. Now, I'm not going to really get bogged down the details here with the mituation reflex. All I just want you to be aware, <coughs> excuse me, all I want you to just be aware of is that, um, you know, the bladder will stretch when it's full. Our brain's going to receive that signal. Brock is going to have a hiccup. And what you're going to do then is essentially um, the urethral, uh, that urethral uh, sphincter will relax and urination will begin. And guys, that is it for week eight. So what have we done today? What have we looked at? So we've looked at the structure and function of the urinary and the renal system. We've looked a lot at the internal and external anatomy of the kidney. We spent a whole heap of time looking at the nephron. <coughs> hint, 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 yeah. And looking at each part of the nephron and what it does, why it's important. We looked at glomerular filtration. We looked at some of the means in which we can control it, uh, control it intrinsically and extrinsically. We looked at tubular reabsorption and secretion here. We've looked at the main characteristics of urine. Um, we have not looked at the uh, regulation of urine concentration and volume because, as I said, we're doing that next week. And we have looked at the elimination of urine from the body. 